Welcome podcast listeners to the Spheres podcast. I'm your host, Toby Castle. Spheres is a public theology podcast that helps successful people live more philosophically by creating brave spaces of shared meaning. Each episode features an extended interview with a different athlete, scholar, educator, entrepreneur, politician or activist and how they think theologically and live well in society. Before we begin, if you're wondering about the music at the start of this podcast, you may be interested to follow Tim Coggle. Tim is one of my closest mates, a talented drummer, musician and music producer based out of Melbourne, Australia. Go find his music on Spotify or follow him on Instagram. In this episode, we take a more personal and vulnerable approach to public theology, thinking well and the experiences that shape who we are, where we're going and who we're becoming. Recently, I spoke with good friend and tech executive Lalitha Stables about cultural change, leadership, the tech industry and the church. In a more personalized approach, Lalitha and I unpack the theological dissonance that exists in many faith-based communities. Dissonance that has led to the marginalization of women in the church, especially those who embody strong convictions and influential roles outside faith-based communities. Lalitha reflects on her personal journey and how, especially in the last 12 months, since the public murder of George Floyd, she has navigated toxic places and spaces with self-care, boundaries and discernment. This will be the first of many conversations she and I will have around these topics. Lalitha is a Sri Lankan-born Australian who has over 20 years experience in enterprise, software, sales and tech. She specializes in establishing alliances and helping customers and partners drive data-driven digital transformation with the power of the cloud. Currently, she is the head of partnerships and diversity, equity and inclusion for Google public sector in the UK. Lalitha is passionate about building high-impact teams and devotes her free time to initiatives that advance the representation of marginalised communities in the workplace. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Lalitha Staples, thank you for joining us. I have been looking forward to this moment for a long time, and I'm really glad that you've been able to join us here on Spheres. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Toby. It's like a, a privilege to be asked by the Toby, you know, wow. to thank you um, to speak. We're just going to kind of dive into it. Um, you know, I'm. I'm intrigued in your role, not only as a woman and a woman of color, but as a tech executive, leader in racial equity and prominent influence in Christian spaces and places. What does it mean for you to live philosophically or theologically? And a lot of people do ask me that question, especially when they are working in, you know, industry, for instance, and they are also in a church environment, I see this sort of tension that they have of, hang on, I feel like God might be more pleased with me if I work in a church environment more than in where I've been placed in industry. And I always say to them, look, you know, I feel like I'm in 100% full-time ministry where I am working in industry. I work for Google, 
you know, I'm an executive there and I've been in tech for over 20 plus years. And I'm not saying that I didn't have that struggle as well, especially when I first sort of came into a church environment thinking, you know, it feels like I could probably have sort of a Christian career. Does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) Career career and path. Uh, It seems ludicrous to say it out loud, but that's probably the subtext of what I I got. Not that anyone ever verbalised that to me. But I think you you see this sort of like promotion or whatever and you think, well, if you're getting promoted in a church, it must be a God promotion. I think that's the distinction I had to kind of make and realise, well, actually God and the church are two different things. So if a a leader says, hey, can you do more in the church? That's not exactly God saying because it's, filled with human people so you know I would do what I I could to to help um in a church environment and I was also you know very much a, a church leader if you like um but also I was a leader in my workplace and I felt like I was I'm, I'm in 100% full-time ministry and I just got this sense that God had placed me exactly where I needed to be and even when I saw my colleagues you know, whether they were doctors or lawyers or um, in tech, wherever they, they found themselves in the public sector, etc. like God had designed them to be there specifically. It might be just to maybe influence a few people. Um, and I think, I think that has, has influenced me just to go directly to God, you know, go, to go directly to Jesus, go directly to the Holy Spirit and ask him. Ask them, okay, what is it that you have um, a plan here for me to do? Because mm. I think sometimes we miss that step because it's easy if you get told what to do, right? Absolutely. It's not always as easy to go directly and, and listen and wait and uh, right. and be curious. Yeah. So did you have to go through a process to kind of dismantle that position that if you're not in ministry, per se, in the church, then it's not godly? Yeah, I had to go through that process because I was like feeling lesser than for some reason. And I thought, why do I feel that way? I had to really uh, unpack that. And just because of the environment that I was in, it just felt like, okay, I feel like I'm I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not as useful to God. That was my thinking. And when I spoke to other people, had coffees with them, I, I got the sense that they were thinking the same thing too. So it was helpful to actually be around more business people um, that we felt the same way. You know what? I'm in full-time ministry and I feel a real sense that God has called me here. And that's okay. I'm not less than. Yeah. And so this... It's an equal blessing. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. So, so this... Um... Uh, this kind of it's such, such a thing that you only got blessed if you're there. You know, again, it's all just psychological, isn't it? Yeah. Like and even well, the fact that I said that. Well, it is, but it's also it's regardless whether I, I serve wherever. Yeah. Regardless or even throwing the towel. <laughs> it's also a hangover, a theological hangover, I believe, between uh, clergy and the rest of the church. That that there is this incorrect belief that if you're in 
ministry full-time paid by the church that you're part of this unique chosen group, which is actually not true. It's absolutely not true. And, and unfortunately, I think maybe in recent years, because of, you know, media also going alongside it and growing, yeah. and you've seen sort of the rise of the evangelical sort of, um, you know, platforms that, that grow because of the media platforms that feed each other, right? Let's not kid ourselves, but with the whole invention of television and social media and, um, you know, you've got pub- publishers and all that sort of stuff, that all feeds into another evangelical industry. Like I talked about industry before, but actually this is another industry into itself. And that's where you've got to really be careful when that becomes the goal, Absolutely. right? Numbers, numbers drive these decisions because then sometimes people forget what what's right yeah. because it's about caring for people, right? And when it's there's money involved and the money keeps coming in by doing conferences and book deals and, and touring and all of that, it starts to get cloudy. That's where I think also people in, in the secular world might look in and go, hang on a minute, <laughs> there's money to be made, there's promotion, there's fame um, also. So they're looking and thinking, this could be another career. And that's where I don't, I, I, I remember reading in my Bible that Jesus did flip tables in the temple, Yeah. you know, when he saw that there was money being made. Mm. And I don't I have no issue with people actually making money or having money in the church. I think it's more a matter of when what becomes super important. I guess uh, ultimately, like, what do we what do we make our idols? You know, sure. or, or or that abuse of of maybe influence and power mm-hmm. and lack of accountability. Those two things are really um, dangerous mm. when that happens. Yeah, yeah. So, there's a lot to be said about that, but that I'll just say that. Absolutely. In regards to the tech industry, to kind of bring it back to you. Um, What's currently happening? In many ways, the industry seems progressive, but it also seems to function a little bit as a white boys club, especially here in the Bay Area. Oh yeah. Uh, is this the case? And what insights can you give for them? Yeah, it's not only a, a white boys club; it's also an Indian boys club as well. You know, if you think about all of the the tech leads at these um, the major companies, so you've got that that group as well from those Ivy League schools, right? And then you've got the the White Boys Club Ivy League schools. So it definitely exists and, you know, the data doesn't lie. You don't, if you look at, um, just let's look at women, let's not even take intersectionality for now, but just women in senior leadership positions. Um, I think the Women's Leadership Institute published an article um, a few months ago it said 29% of all senior leadership positions are occupied by women. You know, that's worldwide. It's a global number. That's not, that's not okay. I mean, we know how we got there uh, at the moment, but it's not okay in how we go forward, you know, to create um, workplaces essentially that are not created for our dads to succeed. Yeah. But how do we, how do we have our, you know, the next generation come through, and experience equity mm-hmm. and ultimately equality, right? Yeah, yeah. I was in a, 
I was in a Harvard class uh, a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, it was around uh, racial equity in the workplace. And the prof made a comment that of the, support of the Fortune 500 companies, the number of women who were uh, CEOs was only five of 500. And the number of women of color was two. Yeah. So yeah. representation as a woman, but also as a woman of color, as a woman of color uh, in these spaces uh, seems to be like a needle in a haystack. It seems to be A, very hard to find, but B, um, very hard to get to. What in your journey did you find catalyzed you into your role? So like, you know, who were your champions? Then what were some positions of inertia that um, resisted this kind of transformation of this uh, C-suite space? Um, yeah, there's a lot in that. There's a lot in that. But I will say that if I look back at when I was entering the whole corporate space and I decided, oh, okay, you know, IBM's offering me a, a role. Um, you know, I remember thinking, oh, my, my, my name is quite ethnic sounding, you know, like a long Sri Lankan name. And I would see a lot of bias in people's CVs when they were looking at CVs because I went there as a grad, right? Um, people with accents would discriminate against people with um, ethnic sounding names or African sounding names. And I thought, you know, I'm already a woman, I'm a woman of colour, I'm also single in these, you know, middle-aged sort of um, uh, families with, you know, two and a half kids and a, and a white picket fence and all of that stuff. So I thought I don't want to give myself an extra um, jeopardy, right, or, or handicap. So I changed my name to a, an easier sounding name that everyone can pronounce. So I called, instead of Lalitha Ariaratnam, I changed it to Lalita Ari, you know, and I got the validation. I got the, you know, good on you. I can say Lolita and, you know, um, and people remember you better, you know, in sales. Yes. So that was just like an example of me conforming and bending myself into shapes to fit into the dominant culture to, to succeed, right? If you want promotions and progression, um, you know, you need to change the way you speak. You need to change what you say. You can't really, I mean, if you think about intersectionality, um, you've got like, you can't just even disregard culture as well. So you've got, you know, a woman, a woman of color, but also I'm Sri Lankan. So you got to look at cultural diversity as well. But I couldn't bring my whole self to work. I mean, are you kidding me? I could, I, how could I talk about what, what happens in my culture? You know, unless I found another Sri Lankan um, there. So from very early on, not only did I realize, okay, this is not going to be an even playing floor for me. I had to make some micro decisions or actually major decisions to assimilate and, and acclimate to the dominant culture. And um, other than your name, what else did you have? Um, you know, I learned very quickly that you can't show emotion. You know, that was a weak thing. Um, I'm a very passionate person. And I like to challenge the status quo, right, and bring challenge. Mm -hmm. You're laughing. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm funny that. Yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> when I look at, if I look at data, I like making data-driven decisions. And when you bring it to, to leadership, you know, uh, some people don't like to be challenged. And I had to learn very quickly of how to, you know, say things that doesn't offend people because you have to say it in a certain way and, you know, you can see all the yes people getting promoted and I had to make decisions about who I was and what I was going to stand for. And luckily for me, I made those decisions about that doing the right thing was actually more important than getting the recognition. So somewhere in all of this, I made those decisions. Um, and yes, I did get overlooked for promotions because of it. I would see people with the gift of the gab, you know, probably less competent, but had more time to uh, promote themselves. And I had to learn, okay, maybe I need to take a little leaf out of their book and maybe spend 20% of my time, you know, letting people know what my wins are and my achievements are. So, you know, I learned, I learned um, uh, the, the, what the white boys club was doing and the, and the Indian boys club were doing. And I realized it was all about relationships very early. And I decided that my values were what I was going to live by, you know, so defining, and I'm a values based leader. So I decided that that was what I was going to do. And trust is a big value of mine. So building trusted relationships is much more important than just networking and trying to use people. Mm, you know, so, yeah. so I had to make those in those, bigger decisions of realizing, okay, it's about relationships and who you can use. I decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to build trusted relationships if it takes time, but it's really about how I can add value to people. And over time, I've seen that come back in spades in terms of people coming to help me when I've needed it. That's good. What would you say are some other um, key values that are... That I can be called upon, yeah. yeah. For me, it would be, um, you know, resilience. You know, I've been in, in this industry and I've, I've um, overcome much. You know, I've had to just sort of dust the dirt off my shoulders and go, okay, let's try again and go again. And I think that resilience and grit and that entrepreneurial spirit that I've got, I've always tried to maintain in all of my new, you know, projects that I take on. And that's the way I, I lead my teams. Um, the other one would be creativity. I'm also you know, a singer and songwriter way back when. I actually thought I was going to be a singer and songwriter. But me having, you know, Sri Lankan parents meant that they said, that's not going to pay the bills and you better go, you know, go to university and get a real job um, because singing is not going to, you know, um, help us. So I did that. I went to university, got a scholarship and, and started IBM. So they're like, okay, well, we can sell that. You know, IBM's a good reputable company. So... Um, yeah, so I feel like that creativity that I bring to any business problem is something that I uniquely um, have, and that is a value of mine. You know, innovation and creativity, I guess, go together. Um, and then probably the other value that I would have would be empathy. Mm. I've developed, I guess, because I've lived in, you know, Sri Lanka during the war, then went to Africa for 12 years. I li we lived in South Africa during apartheid having to flee there when Mandela got released and going to Australia, experiencing a lot of racism there, what I call, you know, comfy, cozy, cozy racism. Um, 
I've, and then coming over to London now, I mean, I feel like in London, I feel I can be more of myself than I ever have been. That's why I love living here. There's so much, so many more of me at these levels. So um, I'm sure it's not perfect, um, maybe outside of the, the big cities and all of that, but um, empathy for, uh, for people's experiences that don't look like me. Because I've also seen empathetic leaders, but they're more empathetic to people of their own kind, which hasn't been helpful. Yeah. I think uh, empathy for because of these lived experiences that I've had has given me that empathy for people who have lived abroad or, you know, have had kids or, um, you know, single parents or whatever it is. Like, just understand that this is real life and it affects people's work if you don't have that empathy. Um, and give them the support that they need. How important is representation as a woman of colour, not only in tech, but in all community professional papers? So I remember as a young leader looking to leadership, whether it was in you know, a church environment or um, at work and thinking, I can't see people that look like me or sound like me. And that was really disheartening because I guess as a young leader looking up and thinking, I can't see a progression. I can't see a path to progression within this company or organization. And what it did do is make me determined to cut new ground and pioneer. You know, I have done a lot of that, but it is very difficult, very difficult ground when you are cutting new ground, um, especially if you're the only person of color or only woman on something, you know, that's at, the, at a senior decision-making table. There is such a thing as onlyness and it's not helpful. Um, but I guess someone's got to start and you've got to put your hand up and go, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to jump in and bring people, uh, you know, with me. Um, but it, representation is just so, so important. Has there, and we need to be thinking about that. Has there been a burden in that uh, pursuit of trailblazing or carving uh, out your own path? And if so, uh, what has been the cost of that? Mm, I guess maybe loneliness sometimes, you know, because at these senior levels, you don't have a, you're not able to have like friends. Um, it's very rare that you do find, I was very lucky that I did reach out and made it a point to again build those trusted relationships outside of my organization you know some a wise woman told me that said don't just build relationships just within your own organization like really take the time like every month or every quarter whatever set yourself a goal to really build these relationships outside and i had some incredible support and i don't think anyone can do it without support you know i was sort of on a women on boards cohort and that was really helpful just to meet other people that were going through similar challenges and then when you when you know that you're not the only one going through it I think that just that just makes the world a difference to go okay I can keep going this is not just me but that is the cost of trailblazing like and pioneering new ground it is hard because you are going to get knocked back quite a bit um, your voice may not be heard and that is not easy when you know it's just the, it's the data, it's the facts, but that is is the cost of just being that only person, right? Because you don't have any advocates. Um, 
were there um were there any or are there any wins uh, or positive in the opportunity? Yeah, absolutely, because of representation. So if I think about all the areas that I did pioneer in terms of leadership positions, it's made a huge impression on, on the on the younger generation. Yeah. So you know what, if if she can do it, I can do it. And even that in itself, the fact that they would look uh, look up and say, you know what, I'm going to go for that. Well, I'm going to put my hand up for that the next time I get a chance. So I'm going to work towards that. Well, that's that's good because I'll I'll never know that type of what the results will be, really. But um, you just never know. People are watching. People yeah. are, are looking. And if you again, I've always decided to to stick to my convictions and my values, and think that's more important because that's that helps me sleep at night. And if that's the, <laughs> if that's what the younger generations see, well, that's all I can hope for that they would do that too. And so what that effectively does then is it cultivates the creative and social imagination of the self of someone who may be a woman who's a woman of colour from a non-English speaking background begin to imagine themselves in Lolita's role in Tender 15. In, sorry, the last little bit? I didn't hear that last bit. In, in 10 to 15 years. So that, so that you, in your role, you allow others younger than you to imagine creative spaces and places to exist in that um, if you're uh, not white and male, wouldn't have been part of their social imaginary previously. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So now that imagery is so important, right? When we see something you believe it and when you believe it you're like okay i can probably do this and so it's so representation is so important and not just just quota wise but to give people the support and equity they need to even the playing floor to get there and i think that's really important giving people the skills and the support so that's what i'm passionate about now is you know i take on two mentors a year you know one male one female uh and of course you know one person of color and one not just to ensure that I'm inputting into the next generation, giving them that space to ask questions that, that you won't get in those courses, you know, life experience, how to navigate difficult things and um, what other um, competencies and skills they need to start adding to their portfolio in order to position themselves for these type of roles. Because some people just won't tell you, like, you know. They won't, no. You need to make it available. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of make the shift because you're not only uh, a leader in the tech industry, but also a leader in uh, faith-based spaces. We know that the church is resistant by its practices and questionable theology to females having a prominent role in church. Does this lack of affirmation, recognition, and kind of white male bias impact the women color? Yeah, oh, absolutely. It has a huge impact because I'm thinking, why, again, do I feel less than? And Jesus came to equalize, you know, he restored value. So why do I feel that in the church? Mm. So something is amiss there, you know, um, because the foundation should be love 
not not cold love or conditional love. It should be just love, which is real, pure, authentic love to all people. And no one should ever feel less than whether you're gay or, um, you know, single or divorced or what's the other ones that everyone discriminates against? If you've had an abortion, I mean, the list just goes on of people that are not uh, are considered less than, you know. So <laughs> I just think it's quite it's quite ironic when the message of the gospel is unconditional, pure, authentic love. I've had to really, again, just discern. You know, I feel like I, I was given a spirit of discernment, and I do hope that every listener today also gets that spirit of discernment about what the church does is 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 human. They're humans, right? Working this stuff out. Let's not let's not put them on a pedestal. And there is Jesus who's the head of the church. Don't ever get those two confused. And you've got to go straight to the source about revelation. Um, and I think, you know, the Bible, as we know, has got, you know, 200 mis- mistranslations, right? So you've got to know your stuff. You've really got to go into the context and you have to have the Holy Spirit with you. So it, the Bible says no no Jew, no Gentile, no male or female, because we're all made in the image of God. So all those things make a huge difference. Um, and so I feel like some people who have got not, not gone deep into the knowledge and not into context and not understood this is all about foundation of love have weaponized some scriptures against um, people groups and that's really hurtful and I don't I don't condone any of that we're not here to judge we're just here to love and care for people that's what the church is all about and I do think there are many churches that do that by the way I'm not saying all churches there's some beautiful churches that are just lovely and um, just are there to care for people and love their neighbor you know and 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 work out help you work out your faith and, and address some of the hard questions that we have in today's world. Yeah. And, and so have you been able to show up as your full self, as you as, as you previously said, in church, or have you been navigated to what you That's a really interesting question. Yes, yes, to, yes. I have not been able to be my full self. Uh, again, because of what people will shun you for, right? So, um, so in, in a in a secular world, if they know you're a Christian, then they might think, okay, so if I'm gay, like, are you gonna think I'm a sinner and less than or whatever? And so I could get shunned that way. And then if I go into the church and befriend gay people, I might get shunned in that way. So. I felt like, yeah, I just couldn't really ex- get get my my questions sort of really answered anywhere because no one's willing to have any uncomfortable conversations. You know that goes for the secular world and the Christian world. I don't know what has happened with us, but as humans, we're just not prepared to sit with the uncomfortable and and, and go there with the difficult stuff. So. I think there's a huge gap in in what's happening right now you know there's this huge deconstruction now going on as you know and hopefully reconstruction in a, in a healthy way well, well yeah and you know like i was talking with a mate of mine over here in san francisco the other day and he made the comment that a local pastor here had said that reconstruction is a new phenomenon it's a new phenomenon yeah like we kind of laughed about it, but we 
realize that deconstruction has been going on for like 2000 years or, or like, yes. like, so it's not new. No, it's not new. When did Lalitha go through her deconstruction? I've had a, I've had a whole section, like it's been sections of deconstruction, I guess, because, you know, I grew up in a nominal Christian family. Yes. Um, and of course, you get told a certain bunch of things that you just accepted as true. Yep. And you had a social construct which you believed and you were told you just have to, you know, love God and love people. And there was no, like, I'm like, why? Do I actually really love God? Like, there was no opportunity to say that. How do I love God? Like, you know. Um, <clears throat> so I've had many deconstructions. I think the first one was, I guess, when I had put God on the shelf for a while, you know, during uni days, and I thought, I don't think this is for me. Thank you. And then went through my whole sort of drug phase and all that sort of stuff, partying days. And then came back to God feeling very empty and saying, well, if you're real, like, I want to know whether this is relevant to my my everyday, right? And so I went through that. That was good. Came back to Christ. And then the next deconstruction was, you know, is I had to ask God the hard questions that I hadn't asked before. Are you, are you a good God? Are you a kind God? Mm-hmm. You know, are you going to judge me? All that sort of stuff. I had to go through that, that whole process in a, a lo- alone. Like you know, I wasn't dating anyone. There was nothing happening in my life. People ask me, "Have you got property? Have you got you know a boy? Have you got a promotion?" I'm like, no, 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 no. I have nothing. I'm just seeking God. And I did find that at the end of that whole um, searching phase, I, I I discovered He was kind God. And that was really, really important to me um, moving forward. And then this last one is really around deconstruction, around, you know, this whole, I don't know, maybe it's a baby boomer thing, but maybe this whole leading with sin. Mm. You're a sinner. And then you come in and we'll clean you up in the church. You know, it's almost like a bit manipulative. I don't know. I just. Uh, it's very manipulative. Yeah. Very. Yeah. But some people like that because it's like, yeah, you're right. I do like to be called a sinner and tell you telling me that this is right and this is wrong. Yeah. And therefore there is a path to to feeling clean and that is the church. And if I do more in the church, then I'm I'll get clean. You know, when all you do is, is pray and you can be washed clean. Sorry. Whatever. Feel that you need to. But I mean to me it's it's very different now. I'm sort of going through that whole phase of Okay, what is what is? I don't want any, I don't want anything that's harmful to me or harmful to other people. That that is wrong. So then you can you can say, well, in the church, if you are abusing people psychologically, that's huge sin. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. a huge sin. If you really want to talk about sin. Yeah. What um, so, What advice or handholds do you have for people who may be deconstructing things at the moment? Um, what advice do you have for them to reconstruct in a more productive or healthy way? Mm. Look, I I wish I knew the perfect answer to that, but I don't. Um, I hope that there are churches out there and shepherds out there that really can 
can facilitate those, you know, those difficult questions. Um, I think people need to be able to ask them yeah. in a safe space. That's really important. And to be able to sit with those difficult questions and emotions without judgment. Um, that's where I am right now, right? Instead of feeling judgment or shame because I'm thinking these things. You know, I, I, I probably do uh, associate or identify myself with Thomas, the disciple, you know, the doubt. And that's, that's, I think, most of my Christian life. But I was told that doubt is bad. You know, so, so I, I guess a safe way to do it is definitely invite the Holy Spirit into everything. Because every single time I've done that and asked the hard questions, like the answers have come in a very unconventional way yeah um, yeah that's that's how and hopefully getting into a safe space with, and with shepherds that can help you i'm intrigued because um, um and i forget who told maybe it was a couple of years ago um, but um that faith and doubt are beautiful dance partners yeah and that the way that the church generally, let's broad brush it just because it's fun, the way that the church describes faith is actually certain. Yeah. And the way that we should understand doubt is actually a state. Yes. Yes, I love that. And so, by, and so in hearing you say, which, which, you know, I like commend you and I echo you for it, is that we, you know, by living in a, in a space of doubt, we're actually living in a space of faith. Yes. Yes. And I, I feel like I'm closer to God now yeah. than I ever have before when I just felt like I needed to Jesus everything away. Anything that came up that was a problem or a whatever, just like I needed to, you know, say a, a word and pray, pray, it away. It, pray it away and then, and there's this added thing that you get is, you know, it's got to have, you've got to have growth and influence and platform. And then, of course, God is, you know, blessing you, which is another narrative we've got to really be careful of. Absolutely. And, and that, you know, because when we're, when we're so certain about things, we don't wrestle with them. When you're so certain of that, you don't wrestle with them. Yes, like yes. Engage, and it's, and it's in that space of doubt or of faith that we actually grow. Yeah, and, and that space, giving that, giving it space. Yeah. And in, in a in this modern world that we live in that is just so fast paced, we don't have the space yeah. to really um, to let it marinate, let it sink in. Like what are we feeling about this? this new concept or that we've heard Absolutely. that we just yeah and, yeah. and uh, you made a point about creating safe spaces mm -hmm. um, part of this podcast is to kind of take that idea of safe and take it to the next step and create brave spaces where one may not be one may not have certainty about what they're going to say with their speed they say it anyway yeah, say it anyway. Yeah. And so then in those brave spaces, that's where one actually is either extended or 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 they actually enter into that beautiful space where they hear someone else say, Me too. 
Yeah. Or even just say thank you for sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for just whether they agree with it or not. It's just it's that's that's the beauty of as he's talked about faith is actually being able to be staying curious. Mm. Staying curious that God designed us this way. He didn't design us to say you must, you know, just think this way. This is a social construct and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was never like that. And right. we're not designed that way as humans. So it's sort of not conducive to be in a church environment like that. That's why there's so much dissonance, you know, and that misalignment mm-hmm. of values. That's why people feel so like, okay, when the misalignment of values happen, why do I feel so, so much friction? Why is there so much dissonance? Yeah, that's not good. Why do you think that is? Why is there so much dissonance or misalignment? And is it healthy? No, it's not healthy. Whether you're in a in that you're feeling that in a role, a job, or an organization, anywhere. Yeah. I think when you when you realize what your values are and you look at the organizational values, like what they say they are versus what they actually do, I think that's where it's really confusing to trusting humans like myself. Like I just look at it and think, but you said you're all about safety. You said you're all about empathy, but yet you are horrible to people or, you know, not keeping people safe psychologically or physically or whatever it is. Imagine if like an airline uh, didn't have safety as their highest value. I mean, and it didn't permeate every policy and procedure and everything that they did, they wouldn't have a business, right? So I think that dissonance comes when you see, and again, it's like integrity, right? If they don't say what they they do and do what they say, it really is confusing to the humans. And and the problem is when you love something so much, you are much more forgiving. You think, can't be. I think I've done that with leaders that I like, whether it's in church or at, uh, in the secular world. Like I, I really look up to certain people and you don't want to believe badly about them so you stay in these roles far longer than you need to be because you're like I'm gonna stick it out because I'm not one of those quitters right and I feel like I've counseled so many people and and mentored so many people and I think the one thing I've probably learned out of all of the 20 years is that don't stay longer than you have to in certain things there's some things you're just gonna have to let go of and that is not failure that's actually courage to go, there's a misalignment. My body's now feeling sick because now I've internalized it. Yeah. And it's time to be, to have those courageous conversations mm-hmm. and and move into a place of alignment so that things can flow again. So um, I know that when you and I were on a previous call and this question came up and we were like, brainstorming you were like oh you know good you know so i i hope it kind of lands in the same way but how do you identify yourself you does lalitha see herself first and foremost as a woman of color or do you you see yourself primarily as or of jesus what's the difference and why is it important Well, I think when I talked about that first, you know, kind of deconstruction that I had, that was actually a journey of identity. The first one is actually understanding who I was in Christ because I had really no concept of me being a child of God, right? Um, I didn't know what that looked like in terms of having 
a father or, you know, as I say, getting fatherly love, perfect father and love, also motherly love because we're made in his image, right? Um, so I identified myself really as a you know, woman of God or a child of God and a follower of Christ because uh, I guess in the, in the second deconstruction I realized that the word Christian or evangelical Christian had a really bad connotation thanks to our U.S. colleagues. Um, and I couldn't really talk in the workplace about being a Christian, but I did talk about how I was a follower of Christ. Right. And they were like, oh, tell me more. Like, um, I got a much more reception, I got better reception when I said that than when I, was, when I said I was a Christian because of everything that comes along with that. Yeah. And I guess in recent times, you know, I've had a huge, massive wake up call, I guess, um, in this past year of, of who I am as a woman of colour. And I guess even though internally I identify as a follower of Christ now, child of God, follower of Christ, people don't know that when I first meet them. So I identify myself from an external point of view as a woman of colour because that's the only way they can really interact with me until they know. You know, So I guess it's both. Um, but more so in the past year have I realised how important that woman of colour that I've been shoving down for so long because it hasn't served me well, right, um, to do so, to bring that, bring everything that I am to the forefront. And I think I just made a decision last last year that, you know, I changed my name back to to what my my ethnic name is, you know, my original name that I got, Lalitha. It means elegant and beautiful, hello. Um, and I shoved it down as something that wasn't um, acceptable. In, in dominant culture, but I made a decision that I was going to be 100% authentically me. And I can now because I've achieved what I've achieved, right, at this level. So some people would be like, yeah, that's great for you, Lolita, but we haven't really got to that stage where we can go, right, this is my name, take it or leave it, don't really, you know, uh, value everybody. You know, if everyone doesn't like that, then they can go and jump. But um but I've probably got to a stage where I can do that and I'm, I'm really proud of myself for doing that. And that if that means losing, um, you know, critical and judgmental people along, along the way, that's, that's fine with me. There's no issue if they can't accept the fullness of who I am. But I guess that comes with age and, and not caring what other people think as well, you know, but I'm fully embracing um, my cultural background, where I've come from, sort of getting in touch with my roots and also just making sure I'm advocating and speaking up as a brown woman, you know, in this movement and um, what's going on in the world, it's important that I speak up and speak correctly, you know, so I'm educating myself and making sure, yeah, that I'm at the forefront of that because it's important for my kids, you know, my kids are mixed race, so it's, it's for their future. So for people who do come from a non-white background, what advice do you have uh, if they're exploring how they identify themselves in regards to their ethnicity? From your experience, your journey, your D and reconstruction, uh, do you have any insights into uh, either advice or handholds or do they do it by themselves in community? Yeah, I mean, 
the best the best advice I can give them is to fully embrace who they are, that they're actually um, like everything that they've been given naturally and from birth is actually incredible. And there's so much gold in that. It's just your responsibility, whoever's listening, to mine that out and be as true true to that as possible. And that's really tough when you're in this world that's telling you not to be, right? If you look at like some of my really close friends high up in marketing companies said to me, you know, as a person of faith, it's really hard to be in these situations. I said, why? Because we are exploiting the human condition of this lack. Everyone just feels this lack constantly. And their job is to market to that lack, right? So you can, you will not be complete until you have this product. Same, same in the church as well. You may not be complete until you have this product or whatever. And you got to be really careful about that. And so I think if you're listening right now, you're complete the way you are. And being true to yourself is actually much harder than going out and buying whatever it is to fulfill it or doing something to fulfill that lack because you actually don't lack anything. Everything that you need is within you. God put it there. All the safety you need, all of the love that you need, the acceptance, uh, everything that you're looking for is actually all within you. And we, he says that he, he can abide in you. So that's even another whole another level. Um, yeah, so do it. I, I think doing it by yourself and sitting by yourself with yourself is actually the hardest thing right now on the planet. And being curious about what you're feeling and not being judgmental on yourself and being so hard on yourself. Those are the things that I had to overcome because I'm super hard on myself. I'm very critical of myself, hence why I've probably been this overachiever, right? Because I can just really talk myself into doing it. Like, come on. Um, but that whole self-compassion thing is all new to me, you know, sitting with myself and going, okay, there are probably reasons why I did that. Yeah. Um, you know, just giving myself space to go, you know, if having compassion for myself, that's been a game changer actually. Mm. Me to go, well, I did what I, I did the best, made the best decisions with the data I had at the time. Mm. So, so, so being kind to yourself and, and uh, kind of reorienting your thinking around being compassionate for yourself have been some of these wins in this deconstruction. Absolutely, because I'm seeing more of the beauty within myself that's been all along there. I've just shoved it down thinking no one else would want it. Yeah. I never what knew are, that. <laughs> what are some other wins that you found in, I guess, having the, we could say the bravery to kind of engage with these things you've pushed on for so long? What are some other wins or some other things that you found um, you being you being able just to be your full self? I think it's less exhausting, I have to say. Like, um, you know, there's been always been this huge gap between who I am and then what the perception of who I am and working very hard to keep this perception up, whatever that is, this brand. You know, everyone talks about having this brand um, even in... in the corporate world, they talk about branding yourself and all of that sort of stuff. It's really exhausting, to be honest. Um, and so I decided to not do the branding rather than to just decide what my values are and then wear them on my sleeve and be prepared to be called on 
called upon them at any time, you know, and be accountable for them. That's what I decided to do rather than branding. Um, but the coming back to your question, which is what are some of the wins? Um, yeah, it's been less exhausting to try to try to because there's been a gap between who I am and the perception of who I am. So I've just closed the gap and just decided I'm just going to be who I am. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what people think, they'll still go on and have their thoughts or, or whatever, or distance themselves from you, whatever, whatever they want to do. But that's not the real connections I need anyway in my life to, to take me forward into whatever God has in store for me, you know, yeah. which I know is good. He's a good God. I've gone through that that process and me regardless of my questions <laughs> and how has it changed your perception or and and or your relationship with Jesus I think it's become a really um, living breathing day by day relationship a trusted one now that I can really open up and be who I am it's like but you created me this way. This is quite ironic that I've been trying to run away from what you created me to be. And he was just all the time going, darling, I just, just be like, yeah. it was actually much simpler than I realized, yeah. but because maybe of my upbringing, because of the environment, I always felt like I needed to be something else to then get that approval. You know, perhaps I wasn't affirmed as a child uh, that has come up in therapy. I'm a big advocate of therapy. If people want to go and do that, please do it. Uh, it's really helpful to join the dots with a professional, not just your friends. Um, and pastors are not professionals, so just so you know. If you're not affirmed as a child, then you're always going to be seeking approval externally. So that's what I did constantly. And now I can just get it from myself or get it from Jesus. I mean, how much easier is that? He already he already validated me before I was born. Awesome. Absolutely. Maybe I just, just accept that as true which is hard things to do. Just accept that as, that's a good things to accept as true. I'm conscious of time. I know it's mm -hmm. almost 10 p.m. in the UK. Mm -hmm. You are. Um, for those listening, we've only gotten through half of our proposed questions. <laughs> we'll see if the audience actually wants any more from me. How about that? Oh, so you can get the feedback oh, <laughs> and see. Um, so we'll make this the last one, but how has your imagination, spiritual and social, changed over the last 12 months? And how has it reoriented you with your society, locally and globally? Yeah, it's a big one. It's a big one. I mean, with the with the death of George Floyd, as um, you know, it's it's just the anniversary this week, right? Of that. And that was, I think, I mean, we'd known all of this stuff was happening before and it was just a huge wake-up call for me. I think there was strength in, in, in seeing other people rise up and have a voice around this to make you realise, actually, this hasn't been okay, but I didn't have a safe space or a brave space to say, hey, this has been happening to me in my world because I've been, you know, gaslighted and saying it's not real, it couldn't have been. They didn't intend to, like, assume good intent you know, all of those things. It is what it is, like all of these things just to shut you down. Um, and I realised, you know what, there are so many other people suffering mm. quietly and dying slowly. And this is a matter of, of life and death because 
police brutality happens everywhere. And so that just made me think, well, you know, things like public safety need to be reimagined. Like this is not working people. So let's not try to, uh, you know, look at reform and all of that sort of stuff, but it needs to be completely reimagined because it's not working. People are dying and it's probably given me um, yeah, that, that sort of permission to say, you know, if things are not right, if I don't speak up and stand up and intervene, yeah. I'm just one of those bystanders that I used to think are just so weak, you know. <laughs> so, um, and I'm not going to be one of those because, yeah, I just want to be able to know that I, I did speak up and I, and I, I intervened and spoke correctly. Um, yeah, and also I feel more connected with the world around me because I'm in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not in a bubble. I felt like I probably was in a bubble before and um, I feel more connected with what's really going on. And I feel because I'm able to talk at that level with, with people about my convictions and where it's come from, which is foundation of, of real love, um, they're open to, to talking about my faith mm-hmm. more than ever before because I'm able to have these conversations. So I think maybe we've got it back to front or something, but maybe this might be the best opportunity to, to, to bring bridge, a bridge for people who have never, ever thought about, you know, their spirituality before, which is so important. Yeah, that's really good. Um, thank you so much for being on this podcast. And oh, you're welcome. And I look forward to having you back to dive into uh, to with all these questions. But um, I really appreciate it, and uh, I hope we can get some more. No problem. Hope it was helpful. But, um, I'll speak to you soon. I think it's time for me to go to bed. <laughs> Thank you. All right.